0: Now, hope is a very powerful thing. In fact, uh, after World War II and the Vietnam War, there were many studies that were done in the light of the terrible atrocities that were committed against prisoners of war. And one of those things that those studies found repeatedly was that there was a correlation between the ability to endure and survive those terrible atrocities and the hope that those prisoners of wars were able to maintain. And sadly, amidst the brutality that so many of them suffered, oftentimes when they began to lose a sense of hope, death quickly ensued. We don't know what it's like to go through those kinds of atrocities, those kinds of uh, uh, persecutions that prisoners of war have faced in times gone by. But we do know what it is to find ourselves at times in our lives wrestling with this issue of hope and, and, and struggling with perhaps some seasons in our lives where we even get a sense of hopelessness where it feels like we just cannot see beyond what comes next. You know, as we go into this Christmas season, as we find ourselves in this season of Advent, we really uh, are are in a place where, in in many respects, we think of this as being a season of anticipation, a, a season of excitement, of celebration, of hope and this year perhaps in particular many are going into this season looking for some bright spot amidst the challenges and the difficulties that 2020 has brought our way so far but i wonder as we as we look at christmas as we look at this season as we as we look ahead do you ever find yourself feeling like christmas kind of um overpromises and underdelivers Uh, Do you ever feel that way? Because you see, sometimes we can get so wrapped up in putting our hope, putting our anticipation, putting our expectation in the wrong thing, especially at this time of year. Uh, We put it in the idea of uh, of finding that perfect gift. We put it in the idea of this picture-perfect Christmas together with our family where everything goes smoothly. And in reality, what we walk away with is being 10 pounds heavier and $1,000 poorer or worse, further in debt. And we can sometimes get through this Christmas season and we can feel a sense in which we have just been let down. I feel a sense in which that anticipation, that expectation, that Hope that we had goes unmet. But you see, the problem is that oftentimes we find ourselves putting our hope in things that simply cannot deliver, putting our hope in things that ultimately do not provide what our soul craves for. And so as we're in this season of Advent, I I want us to think as we are uh, moving through our series here in in, uh, uh, the book of Isaiah, that we would think about what it means, or we would rather think about where it is that we are putting our hope. You know, this was a big question for the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, in the days of the prophet Isaiah. In uh, the book of Isaiah, we find, as Pastor Matt introduced us last week, a, a people who are in a season of uncertainty, uh, they are wrestling, where ought we to put our hope? And in the midst of this, there's a, there's a ruler over Judah, King Ahaz. And he is, is finding himself in a situation where he has a decision to make. And the decision that he has chosen to make is to put his hope, to put his trust in the king of Assyria. As Pastor Matt talked about last week, several of the surrounding nations are ganging up against little Judah to come and attack. And in the face of that, God sends his prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz to, in a sense, giving him him an ultimatum. Where will you put your trust? Where will you put your hope? Will you put it in human help or will you put it in God? And though he tries to sound very spiritual in his answer, in around about 740 BC, King Ahaz makes a decision that he will pay to hire the king of Assyria to be a bodyguard for Judah against these nations. And as he chooses to put his hope, his confidence, his trust in the might of Assyria, he rejects the help of God. And in the midst of that, as he leads the nation in this way from this moment forward, there's a sense in which this once great nation of Judah now becomes nothing more than a puppet kingdom controlled by other foreign leaders Ultimately, uh, they will continue to to walk in disobedience with unfaithful leaders and it will result in the whole nation being overthrown. Jerusalem, the capital, being destroyed and the people being carried off into captivity. But in the days of Isaiah, while the king and many of the people across the land had rejected the hope that is in their God, Isaiah himself and a small remnant were resolute in staying committed to honoring and trusting in the Lord their God. And it is to them, it is to them that the Lord sends a message of encouragement. And it's to them. That message of encouragement that is also a glorious word of truth and of promise and of encouragement to us today. And so if you've got a Bible with you, whether you're here in the sanctuary or uh, gathering with us at home, I want to encourage you to take that up right now and join me in Isaiah chapter nine, Isaiah chapter nine, beginning in verse one, where we read these words, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so, uh, this passage, as we get into it this morning, we, we see this idea of, of the hope that the people were to look to, and what we discover as this message of hope begins to unfold is that God is faithful, that His hope is sure. And the first part of this passage that we're going to look at actually shows us that, that the fulfillment of the hope that God brings is going to be described for us and for the people in Isaiah's day so that they would understand what it means. And it's interesting because he starts here with what to us today seems to be a a strange statement, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he has brought contempt to the land of Zebulun, to the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Uh, This is a prophetic passage, and so as we read over that, we might be left scratching our head and thinking, well, I'm not really quite sure what this is talking about, but he is describing for them the fact that God's hope brings glorious restoration. You see, the people of Isaiah's day were well aware of the problem that Zebulun and Naphtali posed to their communal spirit. You see, when uh, when God brought his people into the land of Israel under Joshua, They came into the land, they conquered the land, they were given it as the promised land, as the inheritance that had been foretold to them. Then they divvied the land up amongst the various tribes of Israel. And then amongst those 12 tribes, their various clans. So each family group received an inheritance, an allotment in the land. And Zebulun and, and, and Naphtali were one of these regions. But you see, in the days of Isaiah... Because of the the uh, despising of the Lord's help that King Ahaz had done, these regions had they had become a, a, a place that testified to the nation the fact that their once proud kingdom was crumbling, because. Though King Ahaz had decided to pay money to the king of Assyria to act as his bodyguard against these other nations within a few short years, the king of Assyria decided to come and begin battling against Judah itself. And the very first places that he took, the very first places that he overthrew and he brought his own people in to intermingle and to take over those regions were Zebulun and Naphtali so in Isaiah's day, there was a sense of anguish as it describes here. There was a sense of gloom. But as Isaiah speaks these words from the Lord, it is a promise. It is describing this hope that God will bring a promise of a glorious restoration. As he says, there will be No gloom. There will be no anguish in these places. And in fact, he goes on to describe this more. You see, this area of Naphtali and Zebulun also contained a region by the name of Galilee. And so even right here, some 730 years before the birth of Jesus in in Bethlehem, God promises through his prophet that place of shame, that place of gloom, that place of desperation and of anguish, I will restore and I will make glorious, and as this passage unfolds, we'll see he will do it by sending his promised Messiah who will minister and live in this region of Galilee. This area that was despised and shameful. You know, one of the things I love about this wonderful prophecy is that it was a, a word of encouragement to a discouraged people. It was a word of encouragement to those who were feeling like, uh, like they had nowhere else to turn. And it was a word that reminded them. Those places of shame. Those places where you feel overwhelmed. Those places that, that, that for you are, are, are filled with depression. Those places that for you are filled with gloom. Those places in your life where you look at. And there is a sense of embarrassment and worthlessness and hopelessness. God says to his people, I will gloriously work. I will gloriously restore. And as he goes on to describe this hope through his prophet, uh, we see that God's hope brings light from darkness. Look with me at verse 2 and verse 3. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, one of the things that I want you to pay attention to, and I hope you're, you've got the copy of the, the scriptures there in front of you so that you can see this, is that here in our English translations, you'll see that there's a lot of reference here to a past tense. I mean, look with me. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Now, past tense speaks about something which has already taken place. But as Isaiah is prophesying here, as he is giving this message to his original audience, this stuff has yet to take place. It hasn't happened yet. But you see, oftentimes through the pages of Scripture, we will see this. See, God speaks of something that has not yet taken place as if it had already been completed because it is certain that it shall come to pass. Because when God speaks and God promises, you can take it to the bank. When God speaks and when God promises, it is sure, it is certain, it is unchangeable. And as he gives this message of encouragement to a people in gloom, a people who are walking in darkness, a people who feel a sense of despair, a people who feel a sense of separation and isolation from the blessing of the Lord, he says, let me tell you what God is going to do so that you not lose hope. He says to them, the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light those who dwell in a, deep, a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Through Scripture, especially as we get into the New Testament, we see this, this contrast oftentimes between light and darkness. In John's gospel, we see this a lot, as well as in his epistles, light and darkness. And, and, and light often is, is a reference to the, the, the enjoyment of the presence and the faith favor of God, whereas darkness really has to do with this idea of being uh, uh, separated from the hope and the help and the favor and the presence of God. And so for those who felt this sense of separation, for those who were separated from him and felt hopeless, there is hope. In fact, the picture here of darkness is really of what it's like to grope around, unable to see Anything. And it's a fearful place to be. And through the pages of scripture we see that those who are apart from the grace and the mercy of God. Those who have yet to experience the forgiveness and the new life and the salvation that is offered in him alone. Are in fact lost in darkness. And that is a frightening and hopeless and hopeless place to be because there is no way out of that except except that we respond to the merciful call of a gracious god not only does god's hope bring glorious restoration not only does it bring light from darkness but we see here that in verse 3 god's hope brings joy I read it just a moment ago, but he he, he talks here of the, the increase of joy and how they will rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And he gives here the picture that an agrarian society would have understood. You see, if you're a farmer, if you are dependent on the land, you know what it is to be waiting for the harvest. You know what it is to be dependent upon that harvest. And and there's probably an anxiety. There's a certain sense of angst, even though you're working hard all year round. What happens if the harvest fails? What will we be able to do? And then when the harvest comes and, 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 and there is plenty, then there is a great celebration. There is great joy because, again, they know we will be able to eat, we'll be able to provide, and then they share and they spread the wealth of the harvest amongst not only the family, but oftentimes the entire community. And he says, just like looking forward to the harvest, only to find that it is an abundant provision, so will you be in that day because the Lord's hope Will bring increase of joy. And so he's kind of setting the stage here in this wonderful message of hope that he brings to a hopeless, a helpless, a discouraged people. And he describes this coming hope of God. But then as the passage continues to unfold, we see that God is faithful and indeed His hope is coming. And and it moves from describing this hope to talking about the explanation of God's hope. Not just describing it, but, but, but understanding how will this happen? When will this take place? What will this look like? And so we get... To verse 4. And what we see is that when God's hope is fulfilled, there will be freedom. He says, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. And, and it's interesting here because he uses yoke and, and staff and rod. And these were actually all tools or implements that were used to keep animals in check. But here they're being referred to as those things that foreign rulers are using to oppress the people of Judah. And in fact, he points back uh, when he makes this reference to uh, as in the days of Midian. He's actually pointing back here to the book of Judges in chapter 6. And an account where, where under the hand of this foreign power, Midian, the people of Israel were desperate. They were persecuted, they were abused, they were oppressed, and they cried out to God. And God raised up a leader, a judge, by the name of Gideon. Now, Gideon was not an impressive leader. Gideon was a man of only the modest faith. And yet God used Gideon in that day to bring about a great victory. And by the power and enablement of God, he overthrew the oppressor, And he brought freedom to the people. And so, again, in this word of encouragement, he says, when this happens, when God's hope comes, there will be a freedom from oppression. More than that, when God's hope comes, there will be victory. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, all of those things that were used to oppress will be overthrown, will be burned up, and the victory will be established and sure. But how does this come about? How does this come about? Well, we see that God's hope that He is pointing them to through this prophet Isaiah, His hope that He has been describing, His hope that He has been explaining, His hope has a name. God's hope has a name, and He is the coming Messiah. Look with me, and this is perhaps familiar to some of us. We read it frequently from year to year. If you, like me, enjoy the music of Handel's Messiah, then uh, this will be familiar to you because uh, it it is quoted word for word, but it says in verse 6, for to us, of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so there's a couple of things that we see here that are very significant. Again, remember, we're talking about 730 B.C. 730 or thereabouts years before the angel's announcement to Mary. We see that when the Messiah comes this promised hope of God, He will come as a child. He'll come as a child. The fact that here is speaking about the fact that He, for us, a a son is born. To us, a a, a child is given. Um, It would have, in the mind of Isaiah's hearers uh, pointed them back to the expectation, the promise. And Pastor Rich spoke about this a few weeks ago from Genesis 3, chapter 15, how God, even there in the Garden of Eden, had promised that, that a descendant from the seed of Adam and Eve would come and would conquer. And all through the Old Testament, we see this, this hope. Could this be the child? When will the seed be fulfilled? And Isaiah proclaims this message of hope to a hopeless people. And he says, to us, a child is given. To us, a son is born, and it's the one. He says, and the government shall be on his shoulders. Uh, He will be a great ruler, but more than just a great ruler. In fact, we are given the very name which describes who this child will be. What's interesting here is that it reads as four different names, but actually in the Hebrew text, this is one single name. He, this child, this one, this promised one, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Despite the fact it's just one name, I think it's helpful for us to break that apart a little bit and to think about this. To be a wonderful counselor is not talking about being a great therapist. Rather, it is referring to one who comes alongside in all wisdom. Who will be with his people and walk with his people and empower them and lead with wisdom and justice and integrity. Wonderful, in fact, the word there can mean miraculous counselor. Mighty God. I sometimes scratch my head and think, how can the people, the Pharisees, the leaders of Jesus's day have missed the clear prophecies pertaining to him that when he came, he would not simply be a good teacher. But he would himself be the holy and divine and perfect son of the living God. Because even right here, this child to be born is not only wonderful counselor, he is himself mighty, speaking of his omnipotence, his power, his absolute rights to reign. Mighty God, everlasting father that He is from eternity to eternity, and He is full of grace, truth, and mercy. Prince of Peace. And to be Prince of Peace here is not simply speaking about the absence of conflict. In fact, the word that is used is uh, the word shalom. And, and when this word shalom or peace is used, it is not speaking uh, uh, simply about, uh, about things being stable and settled. It is talking about a, a wholeness, a well-being of soul. In other words, that he himself will reign and will bring a peace that passes all understanding. And so, to a hopeless and helpless people who looked around and saw only shame and uncertainty and desperation. A message of hope is given. And this one who would come would not simply be like the rulers that they were accustomed to, would not simply be one who was here today and gone tomorrow when another king would raise up. But no, we are told that of his increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, that he will rule on the throne of David. In other words, he is this one who has been promised from the line of David. And he will do this, establishing his throne with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And I love this because you see his reign is not built on human cunning. It is not built on impressive campaigning. But rather it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the zeal of the God of the armies of heaven will accomplish this. In other words, this one that I am speaking of, this hope, this Messiah, this promised one will rule and he will reign. And there is no doubt about it because God himself will do it. a message of hope. Of course, we know as we gather here today, as we stand on this side of the cross some 2,700 years after Isaiah and his original hearers, we know that this Messiah, we know that this hope has come. And we know that his name is Jesus. Jesus. And as we are in the season of Advent, as we are looking forward to Christmas, amidst all of the other things amongst the decorations going up, amongst our plans for this big meal, amongst our Christmas shopping, amongst our hope to focus on something other than the C-O-V-I-D that we're all tired of even talking about. We know that as we gather for Christmas, we gather because of... To us, a child is born. To to us, a son has been given. And in a very real sense, as we gather here this morning, in the name of Jesus, this one who was foretold, the promises of this prophecy have been fulfilled, but in a now-but-not-yet sense. And what I mean by that is that we can look at the promises of this prophecy, and indeed, Christ has fulfilled them, uh, spiritually speaking. As we'll see in just a moment, we have freedom from oppression. We have light from darkness. Why? Because He has come. But we also look forward to the fact that He is coming again, and we have hope. You see, Christmas is not like a picture that we look back at this photograph and we say, oh, well, do you remember when that happened? Wasn't that great? That's not what Christmas is about. That's not what we do. Uh, The tendency is to look and say, oh, I like the cute baby Jesus in the manger. That's not what Christmas is about. No, rather than being a photograph that we look back on, it it is like a guidepost that we look forward from. We see from where we have come. We see God's faithfulness in the past, and we see that he is still working out his promise. And though Christ has come, he he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will come not as this child, but as this conquering king. He will come not in a manger, but on the clouds of heaven. He will come not to bear our sin in his body on the cross, but to bring judgment and to take his people to be with him forever and ever and ever. And the rule and reign of his kingdom will never end. And so we have hope. We have hope. Our hope Is in our faithful God. In our our coming Messiah. But what do we do with this today? We are so far removed from this. This wonderful prophecy. We can read and we can enjoy. And we can celebrate. And we can think. Isn't God amazing? That so many years before. He already had a plan. And he has fulfilled that plan. Yes. But how therefore do we live in light of this? I want you to think about this. We can live in light of this hope today. Wherever we are and whatever may be going on in our lives. First, because you see, in Christ, there is restoration where there was only once anguish. I mean, think about this in the midst of this world that we live in, in the midst of people groping around, trying to figure stuff out on their own, in the midst of a year that has been so challenging in so many ways, we have a God who through the Lord Jesus Christ has made a way to bring about restoration where there was only once anguish. And for some of us, some of us we understand a little piece about this because we've got some stuff, we've got some hurt, we've got something in our life perhaps from years and years ago perhaps that we have never told another living soul about and it is constantly there and we kind of cower before it every time it comes to mind because the hurt is so deep, because the pain is so real And we carry around with us this shame and this gloom. I want you to know that just as God promised to this people so many years ago. In Christ. As you take this to him. He delights. To bring glorious restoration out of the deepest areas of shame. you may feel like there is no hope and there is no help for whatever that thing is. But today I want to commend you. I want to exhort you. Take it to Jesus. Take it to Jesus because this God specializes in glorious restoration. We can live in light of the promised hope that we find in this passage in that in Christ we are transferred from from darkness to light. In, in fact, we can celebrate the fact that God literally has picked those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have trusted in Him for salvation, He has picked us up from this hopeless, helpless, dark dominion as it talks about in Colossians chapter 1, and He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We once We're in a place of despair and hopelessness and helplessness. And now we have the abiding presence of God who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He has called us to himself and he is with us. And today, if you're watching at home or if you're here gathered, it may be that that you have never come to this place of acknowledging your need of a savior, that you have never for yourself recognized the fact that when we talk about what Jesus has done, when we talk about his love, when we talk about the forgiveness that is found in him because he laid down his life, he died on the cross, he bore our sin, and he rose again victorious to life, that that in that there is an invitation to you. And that invitation is that you don't have to live in that darkness anymore. But that you can know what it is to experience the freedom and the forgiveness and the life that is found in this Jesus. And so, likewise, we not only have been transferred from darkness to light, we we find increase of joy. You remember, we've seen this all in this passage here in Isaiah chapter 9. We find increase of joy. You know, one of the great tragedies that we who name the name of Jesus Christ in our land, in our day, and perhaps especially this year, have wrestled with, is that we have been just as grumpy as everybody else. Yet in Christ there is a joy, because you see, your circumstances and mine, Do not dictate our response. Why? Because we have a hope that is beyond our circumstances. We have a certainty, a confidence, a joy in something that is beyond whether or not we have to wear a mask, whether or not we have to have a vaccine, whether or not we can gather together in a group larger than whatever it is for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Our hope, our joy has nothing to do with an election. But everything to do with the fact that it is set on one who is utterly certain. We can live in light just as Isaiah called the people so long ago. To look to that which is to come and find joy. We can, through Christ recognize that we are set free from the oppressor of sin that once enslaved us, just like the people of of Israel were to look back and to remember how they once were oppressed by Midian, how they were in Isaiah's day being oppressed by the king of Assyria. So there was a freedom that God took people who were enslaved and he set them free. And the message all through Scripture is the fact that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, every last person is a slave to sin. Every last person has a sin problem. We may not like to use that word. It may be unpopular in our society. We might try to fool ourselves by saying, well, ultimately I'm really pretty good. But when the God of the universe says, no, you are a wretched sinner who has rebelled against me, then we need to pay attention. But the glorious message is that God does not leave us in our sin, but the reason that He sent His Son is that we might have freedom and life. Here, some 2,700 years ago, here, 730 years before Jesus was born and laid in the manger in Bethlehem, we already have the gospel being proclaimed freedom, victory over sin, and death, and hell. In Christ, we have our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. And I think within the context here of Isaiah chapter 9, it's supposed to spark our our thinking. And we're supposed to recognize, why would we possibly put our hope in anyone or anything else? Why would we trust in the king of Assyria? Why would we put our confidence in this? Why would we put our confidence in that? Why would we get all beat up about whether this person's in the White House or that person's in the White House? Why would we put our confidence in the economy? Why would we trust in any of that stuff when this is our God? But this is our God. When we have. One. Who is a wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. It's not that that other stuff. Isn't important. Friends it's just simply. Not. Able. Able. To sustain our hope. And if our hope is there. Then we will find that we are hopeless. But if our hope is here. In this one. Then we will find that we have a hope. That is sure and certain. And delightful. Because in Christ. We can face each day knowing. That he is coming again to rule. And to reign. And that when he does all things will be made right. All things will be made right. Listen, I am not promising that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that life will be simple and easy. I am not promising that we know heartache and hardship and difficulty. But I am promising that as the Apostle Paul says, these light and momentary afflictions, they don't even begin to compare to the surpassing glory of that which is to come. We have a king who is coming again to reign. And when he comes, he will bring his reward. When he comes, he will bring peace. When he comes, it will be an everlasting reign that will never, ever, ever end. And it will never, ever, ever, ever cause you to be dissatisfied in him. So we have hope and we have confidence. So, the truth is that When we look back over some of the atrocities that have been committed throughout history, when we think of people like prisoners of war, how they have endured unspeakable trials. And yet were strengthened and able to persevere as they held on to a hope of rescue, as they held on to a hope of release, as they held on to a hope of perhaps being reunited again with their families. The truth is that while we may never know what it is to be a prisoner of war, and I certainly hope that none of, none of us ever have to experience that, we do know what it is. We do know what it is to endure trials and, and, and difficulties and struggles and darkness in this present world. But Jesus is our hope. He has brought restoration. He has brought light. He has brought joy. He has brought freedom and, and victory for those who will put their trust. In Him, And as we prepare for this Christmas, that's the real reason that we celebrate. More than that, we don't merely look back in celebration and in awe and in thanksgiving at Christmas, but we look forward just as Isaiah did in his day. To a hope that is sure, not a wishful fanciful hope, but a hope that is sure because our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming again to rule and reign. And in this, we find hope and we rejoice. Where are you putting your hope? Put it. In a faithful God whose hope is sure, whose hope has come, whose hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord. We. So often put our hope in many things. We allow our eyes to be distracted and led into this thing and that thing. And yet, the things of this world ultimately are empty, just like the king of Assyria's help in the days of Isaiah. We need a hope that is certain, a hope that endures. And this morning, we thank you for the hope that is in Christ Jesus that even when we didn't know that we needed a Savior, that You were already working, You were already unfolding Your amazing plan to send Your one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. Lord, we thank You for this hope. As we are in this season of Advent, as we look back in celebration, Lord, help us to see and to savor Christ, even amidst the busyness and the other things that this season often gets wrapped up in. But Lord, also allow us not only to look back, but also continue to look forward with anticipation, with joy, and with hope. And Father, I would pray this day especially for any who today find themselves like the people of Isaiah's day in gloom. In anguish, feeling overwhelmed and uncertain and hopeless and helpless. I pray that this day by your Holy Spirit, that you would bring about a joy that increases, that you would bring about a glorious restoration, just as you promised. And that you would lead them out of darkness and into your marvelous light. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, we thank you for joining us together this morning, whether you're here in person or online. We're so thankful that you've taken this time to worship together with us. As we are in this season, as we look to Christmas, I pray that now as we go into this week ahead, that you would be filled with all the knowledge of God, the hope that is found in him, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the love of God, that indeed it would sustain you. And indeed, you would find increase of joy as you look to him. God bless you and have a wonderful week.